we can get in Genesis. We're going to cover most of chapter 24. As we finished up, and it was the Wednesday before praise night, we kind of covered the first nine verses of chapter 24. And if you remember, it was Abraham telling his servant that I made the case, I believe it was Eliezer, because he's mentioned in earlier chapters as being his main servant. And he said, put your hand on my thighs, swear an oath, go back to my people and get my son a wife. That's where we're going to pick the story up tonight, and we're going to start up in verse 10. Let's see what it says. So he sworn the oath, and it says in verse 10, Then the servant left, which, like I said, I think is Eliezer. He's taking with him ten of his master's camels loaded with all kind of good things from his master. So he's got supplies and also some gifts. He set out for Aram Neharim, which is really northwest Mesopotamia. If you're looking at the map, and remember we looked at a map a couple of weeks ago, He's going back to where Abraham is from. Because if you remember the prior chapter, Abraham said, go back to my people, get my son a wife. I do not want him marrying one of these Canaanite women. <clears throat> so he's going to the town of a, a city called Nahor. It's also his brother's name, by the way. In this city of Nahor, it's near the area that we saw on our map two weeks ago called Ur. And where they were when Abraham sent him out, he was in um, a city we called Hebron, or Hebron, depending on how you want to say it, which as the crow flies is about 500 miles. But if you know this kind of time frame, they didn't travel as the crow flies. They went on what they called the trade routes. It was 900 long, hard miles to go back to where Abraham was from. So they've got to take a 900-mile, 10-camel caravan back to the homeland. And verse 11 will tell us a little more about what happened. So he's on a mission, and that's our title tonight, by the way, on mission. You'll see why eventually. So this servant, it says in 11, he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. So a couple things to notice as you're reading this. He's going to what I would probably say was the best spot to meet a lady because the women in that culture had to draw the water. The men would do the more hard physical labor maybe. So don't get mad, ladies, if you're hearing this, reading this, saying, wow, the women draw the water. Well, it's probably better than chopping firewood and other things, you know, that um, I'm sure there were some lazy husbands too, so not every husband was probably a hard worker, but anyway, the women are at the well. He knows that's the place to be to find a wife, so he goes to that place, and I believe probably, um, by the way, the Holy Spirit sent him there, because he could have went anywhere to find this lady, so he goes to the prime spot in my mind, and more important than that, though, look what he does when he gets there. He asks God to help him before he ever does this. He says, Lord, help me. I need help in this. And he also prays for his spiritual leader, which would be, in a way, his pastor, his Abraham. So he's praying for help, praying for his leader, which is a great reminder for us. You know, God's there to help us. God will help us when we're in trouble, um, if we ask. Sometimes we forget to ask. We try to do it in our own power. We get ahead of God. We've covered getting ahead of God all through Genesis, but... Let's look at a verse out of Isaiah. This will remind us what we should do. God tells us, I'm God. I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. That's your right hand, my right hand. And he says to us, to you, do not fear. I will help you. So if you've got a problem in your life, a trial as we prayed about earlier, just imagine God has your right hand. He's going to lead you through that trial. He's waiting on us, though, to ask. Ask me for help. I will help you, but you need to come to me first, not after you've exhausted all your human ideas like Abraham did in these other chapters. So let's see what happens. They're at the well. They're waiting on the water. They're waiting on a lady. And then verse 13, it says, See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. So his plan that God ordained is already working. But now he's going to give it some kind of stipulations. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, because probably all the ladies would do that part, by the way. That was a cultural thing. But when she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, in other words, I'll serve you, I'll give you a bonus, not just a drink, 
let her, the one that says that, let her be the one you, you have chosen. You, God, not me, you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, in other words, if she meets these two qualifications, by this, I will know that you have shown my master kindness. And really what he's saying, I will know she's the one, the one you've ordained. So let's think about that for a second. How is he going to narrow the field? Because there could have been a lot of ladies getting water. Most likely there would have been, even in a small village. He's asking for something that is humanly possible. In other words, show me the lady that gives me a drink, and not just that, offers to water my camels. So he's not asking for a miracle, because God could have done a miracle. God could have just transported the lady over to Isaac if he'd have wanted to, but he wanted us to get involved. More on that later. But look what else he's asking for. Show me a lady that has great character, that wants to serve others, that wants to water my camels. Make it be her. But most importantly of the three, he says, make it be, Lord, the one you have already chosen, the one you picked. Not my choice, your choice. Your will be done. Sound familiar? How does that apply to us? Well, we make our own decisions a lot, but sometimes we get ahead of God, just like Abraham. I made us a checklist. It's not all-inclusive, but it's some good guidelines. I hope you agree. Let's look at some things we should all do when we, maybe you have a decision you got to work on this week, but maybe you think it's too trivial, it's too small. Nothing is too small for the Lord, but we have to ask him. So first, we do what the servant did. We pray for God to lead, and then we wait on him to answer. We don't do an Abraham and Sarah and try to take matters in our own hands and get ahead of God. That ends in disaster, like it did for them. So sometimes we have to be patient. We have to wait. Then, just like the servant, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prompting. Like I said a while ago, I believe he guided Eliezer to that well. It wasn't his idea. He might have thought it was. That was the Holy Spirit prompting him to go to a certain place because it was the best place. Ask God for guidance. Lord, I don't know how to do this. I need your help. We already read a verse that God has got us by the right hand. And don't miss this one. If, if we're still not sure, you know, we think we know, but maybe you should bounce that idea off a godly person. Not your friend from high school, not your neighbor that doesn't even know who God is. They might give you advice, but will it line up with this? It might, but my answer is most likely it won't. It'll be their opinion. Our opinions don't mean much, mine included. Seek the wisdom of other mature, godly believers. Ideally, a person that's been in the faith even longer than I have, than you have. Seek a wisdom from somebody that's been doing this longer than us. Then, just like that servant, be sensitive to what the world would call a coincidence, a circumstance. We would, in Christian world, call it, a, a Christ follower would call that, it's a God appointment. You ever had a God appointment? You've got to be open to them, though. If we're not looking for God appointments, we'll never see one. We've got to be kind of, okay, God, what are you going to do? What door are you going to open? Wow, look how that all lined up. It's not a coincidence. It's a God appointment. Then, the, the, probably the main one's the last one. The most important of all. If you could make them all down to one topic, I would say this one. Our decision, my decision, your decision, always, 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 always has to line up with this. If it doesn't, you know what it is? It's my opinion. It's your opinion. Already told us our opinions aren't worth anything. Because here's what can happen, and as pastors, we do a lot of counseling, marriage counseling, individual counseling. Unfortunately, all of us hear this kind of a lot. Well, I know what Scripture says, but I feel, and I already, I'm putting my head down on that one, I feel. I feel like this is the way I should go. I, I feel that God is guiding me over here to do this thing. Does it line up with this? Well, you know, not exactly, but I just feel that's the best course of action. And we as the pastors just shake our head because we know that's going to lead to disaster. And if it doesn't right away, it will eventually because we have to be in God's will, which means everything we do lines up with his word, his commands, his instructions. 
And here's the key. Even when we may not like the answer, it doesn't ask for my opinion. It's God's opinion. That's what matters. So make sure our decisions always match God's word. Back to our text, verse 15. Here's what's cool about this one. So he prayed that prayer before he finished praying. Key word, before. Rebecca, that's a familiar name, right? She's the one. You already know that, so I'm not giving away the story. She came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. So his brother's name is Nahor, so is the town. He likely founded the town. But his prayer, this servant's prayer, is answered before he even gets it all the way out of his mouth. He's not quite even through saying it. She comes out. By the way, don't expect that to happen to me and you. It might, but it's likely not. Um, anybody ever had that happen yet? It hadn't happened to me. I've prayed lots of prayers, but I can't even think of one time it happened before I got finished. But don't get discouraged. God can answer before, during, after, it's always his perfect timing. But this during the prayer probably will most likely never happen to me and you. But it might. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But here's the funny thing, too. Eliezer, if this is really Eliezer, which I think it is, he doesn't know she's the one. All he knows is he's still praying a female has come out to get water. So he's probably thinking, oh, maybe she's the one. But here's our first point if you're writing things down, taking notes tonight. God's timing is always perfect, always, always, always perfect, even when to us, to us, it seems either too early or too late. That's my opinion. Once again, here we're back to our opinion. Remember the opinion thing. My opinion, your opinion don't matter. God's timing is always perfect, no matter what I or you think about it. It's perfect because God is perfect. How could a perfect God mess up the timing? It's just not logical. So I'm wrong, not him. Verse 16. Now we're going to hear a little description about Rebecca. The woman was very beautiful. She was a virgin. No man had ever slept with her, in case you wonder what that means. She went down to the spring. She filled her jar and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her. More on that in a second. And he said, please give me a little water from your jar. So he makes the first move. Look what she says in 18. Drink, my Lord, she said. And then she quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. But 19, it says, after she gave him a drink, she said, I'll draw enough water for your camels too until they've all had enough to drink. So his whole caravan, she's going to water and take care of. I read the NIV, and that translation says hurried. Some of your translations may say ran. The key thing I want to talk about, though, he made the first move, the servant. Because sometimes we pray, and then we wait on God to do something. Like, we just want to sit back and watch. Usually in Scripture, you, you almost never see that. Occasionally you will. <clears throat> but God is waiting on us to get involved. He could do that because he is God. He could do miracles, of course. We know all the miracles in Scripture. So the point is, if you're taking notes again, we've already got number two coming up. Two write together, and then we'll be a while for you to write again, I promise. God always hears our prayers, always. It's not like he doesn't listen. He's tuned us out. But sometimes, like in this case, he's waiting on us to get moving, to do something. The servant ran. He, he hurried to meet her. He's waiting on me to get in the game before he gets involved. I'll give you another example, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about it long, but we all know the story of the loaves and fishes, right? Well, God could have done that miracle numerous ways. He could have just done a miracle and put a banquet on the grass. All the fish, all the meat, all the cheese, all the wine, all the anything. But what did God do in that story? Jesus says, what do you have? Let me take what you have. Even though it looks to you like nothing, I want it from you so you get in the game and I'll multiply what you have, what you do. God operates like that a lot. He wants us to be involved before he does that miracle. Think of it like your kid. You know, we all read and know about, hopefully nobody this applies to, you all know about spoiled kids, right? 
God doesn't want spoiled kids. We would be the spoiled kids if we got a miracle every time we prayed, wouldn't we? If we always got like a genie in the bottle miracle every time we prayed something, we would come to expect it. We would get lazy. Let's be honest. We would sit on the couch and wait on God to do something. God says, get involved. You do something, and I'll meet you and do the rest. Even how little your peace looks to you, you do it. I'll take over. That's what's happening right here. Let's keep reading and see how it plays out. Verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough. She ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels, the whole caravan. Without saying a word, the man, which is the servant, Eliezer, watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. So why is he watching her? It looks to us like she's already doing it. Well, I think he's watching to make sure she said she was going to water my camels. I want to see if she does it. In other words... Does her walk match her talk? Or is she just saying she's going to do all these things? Will she do it? Well, we're seeing already she is doing it. Let's keep reading. When the camels had finished drinking, so they're all done now at this point, <clears throat> the man took out a gold nose ring weighing about a becca, an old measurement that really in modern times is about six grams. So six grams of gold for her nose, two gold bracelets that weighed 10 shekels, which is about four ounces, then he asked her, whose daughter are you? He's trying to discern now. She really looks like the one. She's done all these things I've prayed and asked for, but is she of the right clan? In other words, is she a pagan or is she Abraham's family? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? So he wants to know about her family now. He's moved on. But also notice what he did. He didn't help her. He never lifted a finger he never let her get started. He also didn't stop her and say, okay, you've watered a couple of camels. Let's go to the house. No, he lets her do all the hard work of watering all those camels. Now he's kind of questioning her to make really sure she's the one. Look what her answer is. Who, who's your father? I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as a room for you to spend the night. So, Scripture doesn't really tell us the story, but once again, I would think, you know, remember Abraham, he said, put your hand on my thigh, he swore this oath, he says, go to my family. Wouldn't you think it'd be pretty likely he'd tell him his brother's name? Like, go to my brother's house, go to Nahor. So, I bet the Nahor, like, oh, ding, 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 that's the right family, I'm in business now. That's probably what Eliezer's thinking. Let's see in 26. Then the man, the servant, bowed down and worshiped the Lord. So he's praying to God, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer. And he said, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So he's really convinced this is the right lady. She's of the right genetics, she's in the right lineage, she's done all the right things, she looks like a humble servant, she's very beautiful, she checked every box he had in his mind. But look what he's doing. This is a servant that's praying to God and giving God the glory, God the thanks. I think it's because Abraham discipled him. You know, we talk in our church here a lot about discipleship. Get a mentor. We have a couple of ways to do that. We have small groups. We have one-on-one, -on -one, like a man and one man meet up for a period of time. If it's a lady, it'll be two ladies meeting. You can get discipled one-on-one. -on -one. If you want that, contact the church office. But also, we periodically have small groups, more of a group setting. If, if the one-on-one -on -one thing kind of makes you nervous, you can do it also as a small group, a class that disciples each other together. So, this servant has been discipled more like 101 by Abraham. He's given God all the praise, all the glory. Let's keep reading. What happens next? Verse 28. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. So she's probably excited, it sounds like. She's never seen anything like this at the well. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring, so look what he kind of focuses on, her gold nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, 
And he heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her. He went to the man, found him standing by the camels near the spring. Now, we don't exactly know, and as I read that, you might have already got a hint of what I think it might be. He seems to be focused on the gold she's wearing, um, because it can't be because the servant's prayer has been answered. The servant's not told them that part of the story yet. They don't even yet know why he's here. All he's asked is, who's your family? Do they have room in the house? So looks like in that verse I just read, verse 30 says, the nose ring and the bracelets is what got his attention. Anyway, maybe, maybe not. 32, it says, so the man went to the house, the servant, where the camels were unloaded, straw and fodder was brought out to the camels and water for him and his men. There's other men with him, by the way. We'll see that in another verse. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat. Now think of what we already learned. It's a 900-mile journey. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's dirty. I would probably make the case he's hungry. They would have had some snacks, but not a real meal. They're offering a hot sit-down meal. Look what he says. I will not eat until I've told you what I've come to say. So they answer, Laban says, then tell us. Tell us what you're passing up food for. This servant is on mission, wouldn't you say? He's serious about completing it. He's going to pass up a hot meal, which is our next point if you're taking notes. Sin is not really the only thing that hinders us. It's one of the main things, don't get me wrong. But if you want to be on mission for God, we may have to occasionally sacrifice what we would call a worldly comfort. Sometimes it might be everything. In the scripture, we see people sacrificing their lives. That likely won't be what's required of us, unless we see in times. Um, but will we occasionally have to give up a meal? Maybe we have to go a little hungry to help a poorer person than we are. Maybe we pay it forward and give our, our help to somebody that needs it. Maybe we skip meals to do a work project. Maybe we go without a comfortable thing. Maybe we don't buy a new car, a new house, new clothing because we want to help the church somehow. Sin is not the only thing that hinders us. Sometimes our not willing to give up our comforts can, can slow us down. It might not block us from God's blessing, but it can definitely slow the process down if I'm holding on too tight to my stuff. This servant's not doing it. He didn't even want to eat until he's done with his mission. So let's keep reading. Verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. And that was a name likely they would be familiar with, because remember, this is Abraham's brother's household. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become very wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. And we don't know, we have to read in the story a little bit, but as far as we can tell, and the Bible scholars have done a lot more research than me, by the way, I'm just passing on what I learned studying this. This is likely Abraham's family's first news, first update of whatever happened to Abraham. All they know, remember the story, he, he left Ur, God said, come and I'll take you to a land I'll show you. They don't have any communication. There's no way, there's no carrier pigeon even, much less any modern stuff. They have no idea what happened to Abraham. And this was a very rough era of history. They're probably wondering, is he alive? Did he get mugged, robbed, killed? What happened? Is he starving to death in the desert? Now they're hearing he's been blessed. He's more or less, in their eyes, rich. And the first news they've had since Abraham met God and got called out of their land. We know Abraham met God, did his family. It's not real clear, but I'll give you my opinion in a few minutes. Let's keep reading, 36. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him, this son, everything he owns. That would be Isaac, by the way. My master made me swear an oath and said, you must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I now live. But go to my father's family, to my own clan, and get a wife for my son. Now, the servant at this point is going to tell the long story I just read to us all already, so we're going to skip 39 through 46. 
We're going to pick up at the end where he gives her the gold nose ring. So skip down to the second half of 47, and we'll pick the story that we already heard up again. 47b says, Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms. I bowed down and worshiped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Then he's going to ask them a, a request. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness, not to me, to my master, to Abraham, tell me. In other words, tell me if you're going to honor my request. If not... Tell me, tell me that too, so I may know which way to turn. That reminded me of a couple of verses as I read those, and I think you know them, so let's look at them on the screen together. One of them's out of Psalms 37. The Lord dis directs the steps of you, of the godly. He delights in every detail of our, your, my lives. That's our first verse. This one's the one that reminded me even more, though. This used to be in our parking lot shirts. I'm not sure it's still there. Anybody in the parking lot here tonight? Maybe not. That used to be their kind of verse on the back of their shirts. I have to look next time I'm out there to find out. Now it's going to make me wonder. But look what it says. This is one of the parking lot guys wore it. Whether you turn to the right or the left, like we all do out there, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Anybody here a Star Wars fan, Mandalorian? They stole this from the Lord. This is the way is God's way, not the Mandalorian's way. This is the way, walk in it. God has directed the steps of Eliezer, of Abraham. He's directing this whole process in his perfect timing. And in some ways, this is the part I told you might be my opinion, I think this servant, Eliezer, if it is Eliezer, and that's also optional, by the way, he's an, in a way a picture he's similar to. He's not John the baptizer, John the Baptist, as maybe you call him, but he wasn't Baptist. That's like saying John the Methodist, John the Presbyterian. He's John the baptizer because he was baptizing people like we're going to do this weekend. We have a beach baptism coming up this weekend, by the way. If you've never been to one, come check it out. They're awesome. It'll be on the beach, Spessard Holland North. There's directions on the church website. So how is he like John the Baptizer? Let's think about what he's already said so far to this family. My master is greater than I am. Isn't that kind of what John said about Jesus? I am just his humble servant. Once again, sounds like what John said. My master's son... And the master this time would be God the Father. My master's son, Jesus, is the heir of everything. That's what this servant's saying about his master's son, Isaac. Then look what he says to Rebecca. He's saying, come with me, leave your old life behind. What was John preaching? A ministry of repentance. Leave your old life. Leave those old rules and regulations. There's one coming greater than I. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. Leave your old life of rules and regulations and follow him. So it's kind of a similar, in a way, picture of John the Baptist. Because the Bible, it gives us hints. Sometime in the Old Testament, we see hints of things in the New Testament. I think this might be like a foreshadowing, a little bit of a hint of what might be to come. Once again, my opinion. Doesn't have to be yours. But I did give you four reasons. Verse 50, let's keep reading. Enough of my opinions. Laban, which is the son, and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. Sounds like a believer, doesn't he? We'll talk more about that in a second. We can say nothing to you one way or another. Here's Rebecca. Take her and go. So there's their answer. Here she is. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. On the surface, that sounds like they're... Worshiping the same God the servant is, that Abraham is, the same God that we worship. But are they? Um, scripture's not real clear, but I, I did pull up two verses. I'm going to cheat. I'm not sure who's teaching um, Genesis 31. I hope it's me because I'm about to steal two verses out of 31. Let's look at two verses out of Genesis 31 ahead of time. Same Laban. Look what it says about Laban. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel different daughter, 
stole her father's what? Household idols. You remember that story? Remember she steals them, hides them, buries them? Our God doesn't allow idols the last time I checked, right? So to me, Laban's got a house full of those little prohibited statue things. Doesn't sound like a believer to me. Let's look at another verse. This one's a little trickier because it depends on what translation you look at. NIV doesn't make this a plural, but many translations do. Um, It's 3153. The God of Abraham and the gods, plural, little g, by the way, little g gods, that ought to tell you something, of Nahor, his brother, the gods of their father will judge between us. And that's a longer story. That's when they're arguing about sheep and stuff like that. When um, Jacob and Laban are arguing about the sheep thing and, you know, the striped sheep and all that business. We'll get to that eventually. But look who Jacob swears an oath to. Jacob swore by the fear, in other words, the God of his father Isaac. He doesn't swear to both sides. He swears or aligns himself with the big G God of Isaac and Abraham. Not of the gods, plural, which are likely these same little household idol things. So my belief, he's not a believer. You can decide, doesn't really matter. But as um, far as we know in Scripture, even though Abraham, because remember if we read the story, Abraham was called from a pagan area, a pagan nation. He was a pagan. God just chose him and brought him out of there to start a new thing, a new nation of Israel. Doesn't look like to me his family ever got on the same page. But let's keep reading. 52. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Once again, he is worshiping our God, the same God of Abraham, because he's been discipled. Then in our next verse it says, The servant, now he's going to unload the camels. Remember he had ten camels. He brought out gold and silver jewelry, articles of clothing, and gave them first to Rebekah, but he also gave costly gifts, so very expensive things, to her brother and to her mother, really the whole family, because it says, then he and the men who were with him ate and drank, they spent the night. Maybe as you're reading this, hearing me talk about it, you're thinking that's a dowry. Well, it's sort of a dowry, but it's not. If you look up dowry, that's a, a price that the bride's family prays. And so this is really what, in many cultures, it's different words. I didn't try to list them all for us. They don't really matter. It's called a bride price, not a dowry. The bride price is paid by the husband's family, and really it has two functions, and that's what he's doing with this money. It replaces the loss of the daughter's physical labor income. Because remember, as our story started, she was getting the water at the well, you're kind of paying for a lifetime of going to the well ahead of time. And you're giving the father that money to replace the loss of his hardworking daughter. But also, as the man of the family, you're proving to the family that you're taking the water from, I can financially take care of your daughter. Take all this money, it shows you I can provide. That's kind of what it's doing. So as I was reading this, I started thinking, do we have any kind of modern equivalent? Not exactly, but if you're married and you're a lady in the room tonight, what's on your left hand? Some sort of ring, probably. And we don't give it for these same reasons. We're not buying her. We're not giving the family. But you are, in a way, showing with that ring. A, you're showing your love. It's a symbolic thing of the love, and it's a covenant with God. It's symbolic of how precious marriage is. But in a small way, I would make the case, we're also showing the wife that we're trying to catch, I can provide for you. Look what a cool ring I got you. Right? And what do the the family members do? Let me see your ring. Let me see your ring. Because they're thinking, if he can get a big ring, he can probably make, he makes lots of money. That's a great catch. Get him. That's just how it works. Sorry. So it's not an exact correlation, but it's got a, we'll call it a hint, a hint of modern times. But interestingly enough, many cultures still do this. This same practice in the Middle East is still common. And other parts like India, Pakistan, places like that, they still do dowry and bride price both. So we're 
kind of exempt from that being over here in the United States. Personally, I'm kind of glad I have to give my father-in-law a ton of money and camels worth of stuff. You know, who wants to go 900 miles on a camel anyway? Not me. <clears throat> Verse 54. So they, they paid all this money. They slept the night. Look what happens right away in 54. I stopped at the first half. We're going to finish 54. It says, when they got up the next morning, he said, the servant, send me on my way to my master. Remember I told you he's on mission. He's been 900 miles. He spends one night. And he says, let's go back. Whew, exactly. Whew. <clears throat> but her brother and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days. They're changing their answer. Just a couple of verses ago, remember what they said? Take her and go. The Lord is, this is of the Lord, take her and go. Well, I guess another reason I think maybe they're not of the same Lord, the Lord doesn't change his mind like that. They're saying, we want 10 more days. Then you can go. He's on mission. He's ready to go right now. One night's sleep, let's get back on the road. I got 900 miles on a camel to do. But the family has now gone in delay mode. Why are they doing that? Well, we don't really know. But I think the answer is mo. Mo money. We want some mo money. What's on the rest of those camels? How many of them did you unload? You've already told us your master has many servants. He's rich. Because we have to give him a little bit of grace, though. This is a bargaining culture. They probably hear and see him seeming a little bit desperate. I got to go. I got to go right now. Anybody ever bargained in here? You don't want to ever be desperate. If you are desperate, you're in trouble as a bargainer. You will have a bad bargain. They've got you. They have the leverage. I would bet this family thinks now they have the leverage. They see he's desperate, and they're equating maybe this urgency with we've got him exactly where we want him. We'll make him wait 10 more days. In 10 days, we'll figure out what's on the rest of those other camels. And, and we, we kind of need all that before we let him go. So their go has now turned into, whoa, 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 you're not leaving anywhere. You're staying with us. But the servant does the right thing. Because think what he could have said, by the way. They just offered him what I would call a 10-day vacation. 900 miles, he's hot, he's dirty, he's hungry. They're going to feed him, house him, take care of him. He can just relax on a cushion. His, he's got his own workers with him. They can help serve him. He could be on a 10-day vacation. He says, no, nope, I'm on mission. i got to get back. My master gave me this assignment. It is my duty to complete this mission to the best of my abilities. He's doing the right thing. But just so we're clear, even if they do want money, and I don't know that. I'm just, once again, my opinion. Money is not the problem. Because as I was reading this, it kind of brought up a famous verse that we know. And I think it's a good time to kind of reconfirm it, though. Because what will the world tell you? Money is the root of all evil. You ever heard that one? Money's not the root of all evil. What do you think's building that playground out there? Money. Money is a good thing if we manage it well. The problem becomes when our money manages us. Let's look at the verse that we already know, but it's good to reconfirm it. We have to visit this one a lot. It's one of the most misquoted verses maybe in, in culture. The love of money. There's your answer. It's not money. Money can do great good things for God. It's paying the air conditioner right now. Aren't you glad for that? And the lights are on. Praise the Lord. The love of money. If I'm tightly holding on to my money and my stuff and it's controlling me and I'm just being kind of like a greedy hoarder, that is the root of all evil. I've put that really before God if I love it that much. I'm so tight-fisted, I can't give to the playground project or any other campus expansion we might need to do down the road. You know, years ago, we had to get new cameras because all it was outdated. Years before that, we had to build our kids' ministry building. That was on donations. If I was so tightly holding my own money, that would be the love of money that the Scripture talks about. But look, look what it keeps going and says. Some people, hopefully none of us in this room we're watching online, 
are eager for money and they've wandered from their faith and then pierced themselves with many griefs. All over, not money, the love of money. We clear? Good. There's offering boxes in the back of the room if you're convicted. <laughs> Just saying. So, we don't really know what their motivation was, but it could have been money. So let's keep moving. Verse 56. Look at his answer. Don't detain me. In other words, he's kind of pleading again. Whatever you do, don't slow me down. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. He's giving God the credit again. Send me on my way so I can go back to my master. So we, we see some good characteristics about this servant that I keep saying was discipled. I think we can see by his actions he's been discipled. He's focused. He's persistent. The offer of a 10-day vacation didn't distract him. And he's giving God all the glory over and over and over all night long. So look what they do in 57. So they call Rebecca. They said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. Let's see what she says, in other words. So they call Rebecca and they ask her, will you go with this man? By the way, it's a stranger she met at the well. If you think about the story, she's known him at best half a day. Total stranger, known him half a day. Look what she says. I will go. What a godly answer. I will go. That's pretty amazing. That, in a way, is a miracle, I think, almost, that she doesn't hesitate. She also doesn't say, in modern terms, you know what she might say if she was one of us? I'm sorry, but this is what a lot of us might do. Let me pray about that. Let me pray about that. No, she says, let me go. I'll go right now. Load them up. Get on the camel. She's taken a huge step of faith, strange land with a strange man. She's kind of like a mini Abraham almost, to a place she's never even heard of or been to. So the family is going to let her, verse 59. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse, or her kind of caregiver, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca. This is interesting. I'll stop on this one for a second. Look what they say to her next. They blessed her and they said, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands, in other words, your family, thousands upon thousands, may your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Here's why I think this is interesting. These are pagan people, I think anyway, because of this whole household idol thing. So the pagans are almost praying a prayer of blessing over her. It sounds to me like a prayer. But even better, it's really a prophetic word. They don't know it. She doesn't know it. But we should know it based on God's word. This is, a, in a way, a prophecy come true. In case you're wondering what I'm getting at, let's look at a verse out of Deuteronomy. Ought to ring a bell a little bit because it's a good verse. This is when the people eventually, not her immediate family, but down the road a couple of generations go, talking about the land they're going to take over. It's a land that's filled with prosperous large cities that you didn't build. Kind of what they just said. The houses will be stocked with goods you didn't produce. You'll draw water from cisterns and wells you didn't dig. You'll eat from vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. So let me read back what they just said to her. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. That sound like that verse to you? It does to me. So they kind of spoke prophecy, which ought to kind of remind us, all through Scripture, God can use pagans, he can use unbelievers to speak truth into our life. We shouldn't just discount everybody, even if they don't believe, if, once again, the same test has to line up with this. What they just said lines up with Scripture, so God can use pagans sometime too, even when we don't really pick up on it. So now they're going to take off, verse 61. Then Rebecca and her attendants got ready. They mounted the camels, and they went back with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left on this 900-mile journey to go meet a man she didn't even know about. So imagine what Rebecca is going to say on the trip. What do you think the first thing she said would be? Are we there yet? Yes. I knew somebody would say that. No, that's a joke. Um, but I didn't say it. Somebody else did. See? We think alike. No, here's what I think she probably said. Tell me about Isaac. Now, you ladies, what would you want to know? 
Is he cute? Is he handsome? Is he short? Is he tall? What's he look like? What color is his hair? Am I pretty enough for him? Does this tunic make me look fat? <laughs> Who knows what she asked? Anyway, verse 62, enough laughing. Um, now, Isaac had come from Bir Lahai so he's now out in the field, for he was living in the Negev, in that desert area. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. So it's a coincidence. He's in the field meditating. Remember what we talked about earlier? There are no coincidences with God. This is a God appointment, a perfect example. When I gave us that checklist, be aware of godly appointments. Isaac may not know it, but he's on a God appointment right now. He's out in the field to what he thinks is to meditate or pray. He looks up. What does he see? A camel train approaching. And by the way, Pastor Dave taught a few weeks back. Remember the last time we heard or saw Isaac? He was on an altar with a knife drawn back, about to be killed. And Dave told us, and I would agree, by the way, he was not, sometimes we think he's a child. This is a grown man that could have probably likely overpowered his father. He's about to get married, so he's, in my mind, probably, you know, early 20s at least. Who knows? He's at least early 20s. He's out in the field, kind of a landowner, he inherited things. He's not a child for sure, but this is the first mention we see him since that altar, which brings up our last point if you're taking notes. God's timing is perfect. Kind of sounds like our first point, a little different, even when we don't recognize it or we don't think we're part of it. Isaac doesn't recognize why he's in that field. He probably has no idea he's part of God's perfect plan that day. He does when he sees the camel herd coming. Let's see how the story ends, the last few verses. Rebekah also looked up, so now they're apparently closer, and she saw Isaac. She got down from her camel, asked the servant, Eliezer, who is that man in the field? Who is the man coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered, and he means Isaac, not Abraham. So she took off her veil and covered herself. She's being modest, once again, a great godly woman. She's a servant, she's modest, she's humble. Verse 66, it says, the servant told Isaac all he had done. I'm sure that was a longer story than Scripture makes it out to be in one sentence. Of all the things that happened, how the day at the well went, how the brother thing went, how he found her family. Then 67 ends with, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. He married Rebekah, she became his wife. And here's, I think, the real key. He loved her. He loved her because God chose her. He trusted God that to bring him the perfect woman at the perfect timing that would be his perfect soulmate for life to fulfill God's perfect plan for both of their lives. He trusted the Lord. Where'd he get that from? Once again, the same way Eliezer was discipled, you can bet he would have discipled his own son even more so. So then it closes with, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, and it's really insinuating because of Rebecca. He now has a wife to love, to cherish, to take care of, to support, to guard, to protect, and it probably reminded him, she's a godly woman already, we can tell, of his wife. Last thing, then we're done. A quick comparison, and this is just, once again, me. Let's look at it on screen. How is Isaac like Jesus? How are we like Rebecca? Ever think about that? I did until I studied this, but I saw some comparisons, and I could have made a longer list, by the way. How is Isaac? He's not Jesus. Don't get me wrong. We've seen Jesus make this you know, pre-incarnate appearance. This is not Jesus. How are they similar is a better way for me to say that. Both were miraculous births. We know about Jesus. He has no earthly father. Think about Isaac's parents. They were almost 100 it was humanly impossible. That's a, mir- a little different miracle, but it's still a miracle. Both of them, Jesus was sacrificed by his father for us so we could have eternal salvation. Isaac didn't quite get killed for it, but it was right on the edge of it. God stopped it and gave a ram instead, so he was literally going to be sacrificed. He was on the altar and tied up and helpless in some ways. But how are we like Rebecca? Anybody here to leave their old life behind? 
You don't have to raise your hand because I already know the answer. You all did. You are not the same person you were pre-Jesus. You, yes, praise the Lord for that. In my case, even double. You don't want to be that old life person. She was called from her life to a place she wasn't familiar with. How many of us thought church was kind of a foreign land the first time you ever came to one? You left a lot behind, but look what you gained. A new family. This is your family, Scripture says. But we were both chosen. God chose Rebecca to be Isaac's bride. Scripture tells us, we don't have time to talk about it, we are the bride of Christ, the church. Not this building, you the church, me the church, us. And I could have put about five more apiece, but we don't have time for that. So we're going to end in prayer. But before we pray, let me just say this. Maybe you hadn't left your old life behind, or maybe you have, but you're kind of still back and forth. You got one foot in your old life, one foot at church, whether it's this church or any church. You're just not fully all in. You're on mission, but your mission is kind of incomplete, is how I would put it. If tonight's your night to go on mission, to go all in for the Lord, I'll be down front. Let's pray a prayer together. It's super simple. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Let's just pray a prayer and say, Lord, I want to put you first. I want to serve you. I want to put you first in all my decisions. I'm going to use that checklist and have godly decisions the rest of my life. Because part of that checklist, by the way, I didn't get into it on the checklist, but you can't be guided by the Holy Spirit unless he's living in you. If you're not saved, he's not in you yet. He's beside you, elbowing you, say, accept Jesus, accept Jesus, accept Jesus. He's convicting you. He only indwells you after you make that decision. So if that's you, let's seal the deal tonight. And for the rest of us, let's just pray that we would all make better godly decisions the rest of our life. Lord, tonight, we love you. Thank you for this awesome story of showing us what being on mission for the Lord looks like. Father, may we just be like Eliezer and not waver, not have any doubts or faults, and just um, always stay on mission for you no matter how difficult the job gets. Lord, help us make decisions that would please you. Help all our decisions, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Always, always, always line up with your commands and your word. Lord, we're just weak, imperfect, sinful people. We need your help. Holy Spirit, make us more like Jesus. Transform us to be more like our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, Amen. Amen. See you this weekend.